I'm Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borana of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of the On Air podcast. We managed to make it, Grace. We've done two. I know. After all this time, we've made it to two already. We have some interesting topics to talk about this week. So, um, obviously, a big recent news story. And again, we're going back to the British royal family because they do like to be controversial. Um, the other week, the BBC released um, the start of a sort of mini documentary um, about the palace and the press, but specifically about William and Harry and their relationship with the press. Um, and it caused quite a bit of controversy from people watching it um, and from the palace themselves with Kensington Palace, Clarence House and Buckingham Palace all releasing a statement saying we've not been able to respond to this, we fundamentally disagree with it, we've no idea what's going to happen but we disagree in advance Um, and then the actual episode airing and being not as you know dramatic as half the interviews have happened in the last year um, and yeah, it just seemed to be spiraling from what is quite frankly a very minor, irrelevant, not very dramatic documentary. It's kind of caused quite a kerfuffle. The the best documentary I've seen on um, the British royal family anyway has been Reinventing the Royals, which is another documentary that the BBC did about the relationship between the press and the royals and particularly William, Harry and Charles. So it's quite similar in theme. So when I saw this, I thought, oh, well, I'll watch it. Um, But I would also say that I probably wouldn't have watched it if everyone hadn't talked about how dramatic it was and how that was so scandalous and how the palace were furious. It's kind of that Barbara Streisand effect in trying to sort of downplay what's being included in the documentary. They have inadvertently drawn more attention to it and made there was nothing in there that was particularly groundbreaking and nothing that hadn't really been said before. I think the biggest one was when they spoke a little bit about um, private investigators looking at sort of hacking phones of people like Harry's ex-girlfriend, Chelsea Davey, which obviously is quite a big story. But even that, I mean, we know that the Royals had their phones hacked and we know that Kate and Chelsea were among them as at that point, not Royals who had their phones hacked. So even though we got more detail, it was still... There was nothing in there that was like, whoa, oh my gosh, this is brand new information. Yeah, definitely. I think the sense I got from it that was that whatever you wanted it to be when you went into it, that's what it was going to be. If you went into it thinking this is going to be a hit piece against the royals and it's going to be terrible and I'm going to hate it, that's how you will think about it when you leave. But it was it was really just a lot of people saying, this is maybe what I think. The difference, like I watched Reinventing the Royals, um, that other BBC documentary I mentioned, and that had interviews with like former press people from the palace. Whereas this was just a lot of journalists chatting. I mean, one thing I did find interesting was that they, we've been told, anybody has talked about royals since before Meghan and Harry got together and who knew the old dynamic will remember that there was these stories that William was being protected and it was coming from the fandom more than the press or anything 
um, there were these stories that William was being protected and that he was actually a terrible person who did all these scandalous things, but that the press didn't talk about it because he was the heir. And the most important thing was protecting the heir to the throne, um, which always seemed stupid to me because the press are motivated by money and it would be incredibly beneficial to them to sell these scandalous stories and make loads of money from the headlines. So what I did find interesting was that we had a couple of people in this documentary who basically confirmed, at least from their perspective, that there was no active attempt to protect William because he was um, the heir and to throw Harry under the bus. It was just that William was boring. (laughs) I mean, it's fair. I think William is quite boring. And I think if you look at, you know, Charles was never exactly fawned over in the press. So Charles is, is... the William position um and even now he's not exactly the press's number one favorite boy <laughs> so I always find it quite funny that people are like oh William's this evil mastermind and he's always horrible and it's the press are covering up because he's precious William um and yeah it it's almost feels like quite rewarding to be like nope he is just that boring he's never done anything <laughs> yeah I mean ultimately this entire situation the, the fight between the BBC and the royals is like you know a a battle between the two blandest institutions in the entire country. I do feel like in any other year, it wouldn't have remotely scratched the surface. It's just everyone's a bit on edge. (laughs) So anything remotely uh, talkable is just becoming such a big deal suddenly. I think one side of the kind of controversy was the palace's initial response was, we haven't been able to see it and reply. And I do think, I mean, you will have the right to reply to any information about you. Um, but at the same time, they could have, they don't have to have be able to respond within that documentary. They could have responded after it aired, you know, like they very much kind of kicked up this big fuss about, oh, we need to see it. And then when it aired, there was nothing in there. Like you said, there's enough there for, you know, either side, if we're going to call them sides to be like perfect or to get really upset about. And there were the odd, like, odd factual inaccuracies but nothing like egregious and nothing that really painted anyone in a particularly bad light and really the bad light came from them kicking up the fuss about it in the first place it almost makes you wonder like what do they expect to be in this documentary like they haven't seen it they know that it's about the relationship between them and the press but they are so concerned that they will release a whole statement that's very rare actually to have all three of them together saying the same thing that they think that the BBC has, you know, been spreading inaccuracies. And I think that almost makes you kind of, or it could make you think, well, if they didn't have anything to hide, they wouldn't need to release this statement. They wouldn't be worried about it because they'd know the truth. So I think to some people it could even make them think, oh, well, if they're that concerned about it, maybe there's some truth to it and they're, they're scared. And I'm not saying that there is, but I think that that's just that's what the statement could suggest to people. Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, it's very rare for one of the palaces to make a proper statement on something like this, let alone all three of them. I'd expect it to be, you know, like a a royal source suggests that, you know, people in the palace are very angry about it. Like that happens anytime something remotely controversial happens. But for there to be an official statement, it does make you question why they felt the need to make the statement in the first place. And I think, you know, there have been worse documentaries about the Royals in the past five, 10 years. I think the Royals have a very strange attitude towards 
the documentaries because there's that there's that very infamous documentary that was banned um I think it was when was that done was 60s or 70s yeah from everybody who has seen it it is just incredibly dull like it's just them going about their daily lives it's nothing particularly interesting but the fact that it's been banned and that the queen has basically asked for it never to be shown on tv again that makes people think oh well, what's in it you know so i just don't necessarily understand why their their approach seems to be to target documentaries that are not even particularly that bad yeah i do think in the past you know even five years i've kind of seen a bit of a shift in how they approach documentaries and not just documentaries but in like their public relationship and it's kind of become a bit I don't want to call it propagandary but they they are they are pushing that kind of or like anyone would that positive angle um but it is becoming to a point where if they are worried that there will be a slightly negative thing they're reacting you know like straight out the gate rather than you know making it even a remotely rational thought because anyone thinking rationally would have gone well, let's watch this documentary and see if we need to make a comment rather than trying to preempt something that didn't happen. Yes, exactly. That would have been a much more sensible strategy, in my opinion, is to just wait and see what it actually says and then you can do a response. Yes, and it gets to that point. Um, and I've always said this. I always said if I was famous, I would just never comment on a story about myself because after a point, there will be a story that you'd like to refute and you can't because it's true. Um, and then you get stories like this week that was in the sun about how William and Kate are boycotting the BBC and never and I was like no they're not like the William, the sun essentially broke the story that you know William and Kate particularly Kate the Duchess of Cambridge is hosting a Christmas carol concert at Westminster Abbey this December um, for people in her patronages and it will be aired towards Christmas and it's going to be aired on ITV and the sun turned that story into William and Kate boycott the BBC, they'll never work with them again, they are fuming about this awful documentary, when in fact, TV, you know, channel rights tend to take a bit of a while to, you know, sort out and tend not to be decided on a day after a documentary and a bit of a moment of anger. I could be wrong, William and Kate might have sat down and gone, look, you go to BBC and you tell them they are not having our carol concert, we're taking this to ITV. But I I do think it's unlikely. (laughs) Yeah, and I I, there's, you know, there's actually a similar situation that happened um, that I don't know if people will remember in 2005 um, with Charles, William and Harry went to a skiing holiday. And at the time, the way that the royals did their approach to the press, which is very different to now, is that they would do a, a photo call or an interview with the whole press. And then they would be in exchange for that. They would be left alone for the rest of their holiday. Theoretically, didn't always work out that way. Um, but that was the idea that was the relationship and um, William so the three of them did a a press call and William was asked a question about the upcoming wedding between Charles and Camilla and just you know was he excited sort of thing and then they asked Charles about it and he he was caught on a microphone referring to the BBC's royal correspondent Nicholas Witchell as being like a terrible man it was like "I, I can't stand that man and of course that blew up and then shortly afterwards, there was a documentary on the ITV, which had um, a few of Camilla's friends speaking. And they'd kind of, the idea was that they'd been given approval by Camilla to speak to ITV. And the press made that into, they were given permission to speak to ITV, but not the BBC because of this kerfuffle with Charles and Nicholas Witchell. So this is not a completely new situation. This has happened before. But I think there's also 
I mean, I did see people and I can understand why they have this perspective. I can, there were people who were sort of asking, well, Harry and Meghan wanted to change the Royal Rota and wanted to not have to participate in it. And they were told no. Whereas William can decide, oh, I don't want to work with the BBC anymore. And everybody's fine with that. And I can understand why people might ask that question and might be slightly irritated. But I do think it's different. There are always going to be opportunities where you have to pick one person. Like if we take the engagement interview, for example, Tom Bradbury was chosen, who I think worked at ITV. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he was chosen because he was friends with William and Kate and they felt comfortable. They knew that he would make her feel at ease because she was obviously very nervous about it. They had to make a decision and that was what they went with. What would be an issue for me is if the BBC's royal correspondents were not included in the royal rota and were not allowed to go to engagements and report on what was going on with that kind of thing. And I think it's because this documentary is a fluffy piece that's from the royals that's basically about making them look good. Whereas the everyday news coverage about their engagements is about communicating to the public what they're doing with the money that we give them. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but that's that's the distinction I draw. Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. I think someone reminded me actually that when I was talking about the Queen's speech and how it airs simultaneously on uh, BBC One and ITV One and on Sky, that they rotate who films it and who's actually in charge of recording the Queen's speech. And I think, you know, when it's on ITV, no one goes, oh, the Queen's decided this year she was boycotting the BBC on Sky. It's not how it works. Um, and like you said, I think, Harry and Meghan in their sort of manifesto made it very clear that they wanted to control who had access to them. And that was probably the one part of their manifesto. I'm gonna, I don't know why I'm calling it a manifesto. I just have. It kind um, of was, that, yeah. I had, <laughs> that I had a problem with because I was like, in their initial one, they still, still wanted to work for the Queen. They still wanted to be public servants. And I've always said public servants can't pick and choose who, you know, has the ability to criticise them. Everyone has that ability to fairly criticise someone particularly if we're paying for them um and I I did at the time be like well that's wrong I fundamentally disagree with that and if it came out that you like you said William and Kate and Buckingham Palace and Clarence House had decided that that was it with the BBC and we'd never seen Nicholas Witchell at you know a public event with the Royals again I would be quite angry with that um because you can't and I said it when this story broke from the sun that you can't cut off especially the BBC the nation's biggest supposedly unbiased broadcaster the royal family who are public servants can't be like well you're not invited to our events in the future um so I think that is definitely it's definitely a wait and see situation I don't believe they have cut the BBC off I believe that they do kind of rotate where things go I mean Earthshot Prize was on BBC um but then you know the Prince of Wales at 70 was on ITV and they're both kind of fluffy things the Queen and David Attenborough was on one channel and you know the Will and Kate and Mary Berry was on another channel they do very much rotate between BBC and ITV to give them quite a fair shout and honestly this year I think ITV have had a good chunk of the I don't say positive royal you know focus but they have I mean ITV had the Oprah interview ITV had um William and Kate's 10th anniversary documentary thing it had the, a lot of the Philip documentaries yeah. so it is quite a fair split to be honest between the two sides and I think in a way this was just ITV's turn and you know it wouldn't surprise me if next year we see BBC stuff 
Well, this is the thing for me is that one, although they haven't seen the documentary, we know that it's been, that they've been filming it for quite a substantial amount of time. And so I don't know why they would boycott the BBC now um, after it's been aired rather than during, you know, they were angry before it was even aired. Their, their anger yeah. was not about what was in it. It was about them not being able to see what was in it. And that's not a new situation. So I don't understand why just overnight it would change. But also you mentioned that ITV got the Oprah interview and they fought very, very hard for that, for the rights to that, that interview. Um, and obviously it did not make the Royals look particularly good. And so it's not like any of the channels are in their good books right now, but they haven't boycotted ITV. They've given this thing to them. And it just, yeah, it doesn't really logically make sense to me. The BBC has a Royal Charter. They are governed, um, you know, with the Queen's name, essentially. So, you know, they're always going to have a relationship. And the BBC is also huge. The BBC studios are the ones who do live events, like they did the Festival of Remembrance very recently. Um, but the BBC Current Affairs are the people who made this documentary. So it's not even the same department we're talking about. Yeah, it has become, from what is essentially a bit of a fluffy documentary, into this quite, you know, interesting, you know, debate. And like you said, it is quite cyclical. Like my mum, every time Nicholas Witchell's on TV, is like, Prince Charles doesn't like him. It's <laughs> <Okay>. just <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a fact. Um, but, you know, he still does, has his job. Prince Charles famously doesn't like him and he's still the BBC's royal correspondent. So I think this will be fine. They, they get annoyed with each other and that's that happens like and it's it's both ways the press will decide that they're annoyed because they got snubbed for something that they thought they should be entitled to it is very cyclical that they they get annoyed with each other it's like a sibling relationship almost where they just kind of they're fighting for control they get annoyed with each other and they fight with each other and they storm out of the room but they have to live with each other <laughs> yeah they've got to cope. yes yeah. Um, but one thing that I felt that they were missing out was that they were talking about this relationship between the press and the public as if it was just about making the, the, the royals look good and selling papers. But there was also the fact that there is that relationship exists also to communicate to the public. Um, it's about ensuring democracy, essentially, um, where we have heads, a head of state and their family who are publicly funded and the press report on them so that we know what's going on so that was something that I felt like the documentary entirely missed out yeah and I think the press do I mean they do break royal stories that aren't necessarily you know positive I mean they broke the Andrew story years and years ago when it first came out it came out through the royal rotor and yes that's going to help them sell um newspapers but it is something that as a public servant I'd like to know you know mm -hmm. who are the royals hanging out with and which royals am I paying for so but I think it's, it does mark an interesting shift in um, their approach because I think anybody who has had any sort of even minor contact with any of the palaces knows that they, they've they always operated pretty much by themselves. And that is something the documentary said as well. Um, there's not been a huge amount of uh, communication between them. And so it is interesting to see that the last year or so they really have shifted to try and be a bit more in unison even just on their social media you see more posts of cross posting where one of them will say oh look at this initiative from this person um yeah I quite like this I think it's it's a good 
idea there should I mean not to say like there should be one person in charge but like there should be <laughs> there should be a boss there was wasn't there there was it was I don't I've never known how to pronounce this man's last name but it's Lord Geet or Geit yeah yeah I think uh he was the Queen's press secretary and by or private secretary and by all accounts was trying to create a more harmonious system where all the houses work together but apparently according to the rumor it's and it's just a rumor um Charles and Andrew in a rare moment of agreement um decided to work together to get him to get rid of him because they liked having power over their own households and didn't want to have to give any of it over to Buckingham Palace and so the man whose name I can't pronounce ended up being sort of pushed out <laughs> yeah even if you know that is you know Charles and Andrew got together I think in the landscape that's changed since with Andrew essentially losing power and mm-hmm. the Queen taking such a back seat that you know in a lot of ways Charles is almost taking on that regency role it doesn't matter if he's giving power to Buckingham Palace because a lot of that power is coming back to him and whether intentionally or not the power balance has flattened because Charles has kind of risen to the top but he can't actually be at the top until he takes that takes the crown for himself so to speak so and it's a shame that it it you know it took all of this stuff going on within the family to work that out but I do think it would be better moving forward going into some light bites now uh, which is just sort of a, you know much shorter um conversations about some things that have happened over the past week i i had suggested the name information nuggets um which is terrible and so it's <laughs> been vetoed yeah, it's been yes universally vetoed. so we've gone with light bites um so the first one that we have is uh kate's engagement she went to a school I don't know where it was you know these things better than me it was, it London? Yeah, London London school yeah, yeah. <laughs> she went to a London school and uh, met with a group of children who were doing a lesson in um, neurodevelopment and um, early development early childhood development uh, which is I think a project from Oxford University um, yeah. I explained that terribly I'm not as good as you at summarizing things neatly but that was <laughs> I mean, that was quite nice. Yeah. yeah, it was nice to see her. She did two whole engagements in one day, so she's going to take a few weeks off now to rest. But, um... No, don't... Yeah, because we... I'm going to get all the messages about that. <laughs> I felt like this is my my role in life, is to bring this up on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get into that in a whole other session. It's all from me. Last episode, I said nothing, and I, I've, I've had, like, four people being like, why are you so harsh on her engagement numbers? It's like, I said nothing! I was innocent! <laughs> <laughs> it's all me it is all me and I will continue to bring it up until she does my work but you know um but yeah she did the two engagements on that day um and it's not the first time she's looked at neuroscience she's mm-hmm. done it you know kind of starting 2018 really was when mm-hmm. it was kind of around the time her early years interest became quite specific but then she also had these odd neuroscience ones which you know I always liked because I was like oh neuroscience that's a massive it's brains it's a bit like becoming an astronaut and yeah, I was, I don't know, I was really impressed by the fact it was being taught in a year eight science lesson. I was like, yeah. I would have loved to have learned about that at school. I mean, maybe this is just a reflective of the fact that I wasn't really following it, but I did feel like it got a bit less attention than I would have expected. I just personally felt like if you weren't actively paying attention, you easily could have missed this one. 
yeah, I don't think it got the attention that, you know, a lot of, and I do think sometimes I just, you know, watch the, you know, national news and it's like, ooh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have been to Cumbria today. And it's like, <laughs> why is this a new story? And it definitely wasn't that kind of level. Um, and I think, you know, it was a two engagement event. It was a, you know, the school and then back at Buckingham Palace. And the second, the Buckingham Palace part of it was not really covered anywhere. Um, but I do think, you know, it's got something to do with the fact it was a year eight, she went to a year eight science lesson, essentially. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, as exciting as it is, they're not as cute as little tiny four-year-olds and she's not outside digging a flower bed. Yes. Um, and she was wearing, you know, trousers and a nice bright coloured work uniform and all those things that really do pull the attention, like pretty dresses or small children or animals were missing. So it, yeah. and it, it's not a new thing for her. She's not, you know, for the first time going to look at something, it's a continuation of work she's been doing for so long now. Um, it doesn't necessarily have the kind of the spark to get news coverage. Yeah. And I think that was one of my main things was when I, when I saw it, I thought, Oh, is this something that's come through her, through her earlier work? Um, you know, is because I know that she's expressed in the past that it's really important to educate people on being a parent and on childhood development and that sort of thing before they even become parents. So I thought, Oh, is this something that she's collaborated on or the Royal Foundation is funded or something? And it's not as far as I know, but it did make me just think like it's it's been a while now since she launched her project and she's had lots and lots of meetings. They're in the court circular. She's had a lot of meetings about it. And I'm just 22 this year. I'm pretty sure. See, coming in with the numbers. But yeah, she it made me just immediately want to to know what's coming from her organization. Because I've kind of I've reserved judgment. Even though that she's launched it, I've reserved judgment because nothing concrete has come out of it yet that I feel I could judge. So it just made me kind of yes. want to know, is this going to be something similar to what she's going to do? Is, you know, this kind of project that Oxford is working on? Yeah, I do think her, you know, her centre is a research centre, essentially. And that is, I mean, that's where I would expect it to go. And I do, in a weird way, I don't actually expect to see anything for another year, which sounds really bad because I moan a lot about her doing more work. But I do think they are going to spend a year doing a lot of behind the scenes work and you'll see Kate go to these engagements um, like when she went to the University College of London the other day and look at their neuro neuroscience se section um, and I think you know you'll see her doing these things and then they'll release their little uh, what do they call them reports um, and then it'll be like and this year we will launch these things. And this is all, you know, my opinion. This could be completely wrong. And in three days, you might go, surprise, we've done this. But I do think it's going to be a very slow burny thing, which I don't mind so much because I am thinking in terms of, you know, she's nearly 40. She'll probably live to say 90. She's got another 50 years to get us done. Um, but I can definitely see, particularly in the way the landscape and the way the media works at the moment, why it just seemed that she doesn't do anything for so long yes yeah <laughs> because her products are such long-term ones no, there's never any like oh there's an end point it's more like here's a start and nothing happens and I think a lot of it is about timing like she announced that she was going to do a something in early years we didn't know what it was but she announced it and then she immediately went on maternity leave with Prince Louis and so we didn't we knew we wouldn't hear anything because she was on maternity leave it was just if they'd waited and done the actual announcement after she came back, then it wouldn't have felt like so long. But it's just like the pacing of it can make it seem like not much is going on. Yeah, I definitely I mean, I've moaned a lot about 
their irregularity of social media posting but I do think you know once every month or I don't know I would probably do two weeks but I like to go baby steps um once every month they could post a picture of Kate with a notebook in front of her being like "Ooh, the you know research centre the Royal Foundation's Early Childhood Development Research Centre has been looking into x y and z this month or you know the Duchess of Cambridge is fascinated by this area of work and we can't wait to tell you more about it you know over the next 12 months so it's still there and even though she's not physically and it's not obviously she's not running this research centre single-handedly it is a lot of scientists and professionals yes yes like they are obviously working probably very hard behind the scenes um it's just being kept in the public eye that it is something that is happening and there is work being done and it doesn't just look like she opened something and then was like see you in a year guys yeah no I, I definitely agree um and like she has done that in the past so I, that's why I don't know why she can't do it now like they shared one photograph I think of her attending the steering group meeting which is before the project was launched um she had this steering group of uh, experts in um early childhood who she would meet with on a regular basis and they shared a photograph of them all like smiling and laughing and personally I have an obsession like almost bordering on a fetish for women <laughs> royal women in particular writing in notebooks it doesn't really I, they could be writing nothing they could be writing song lyrics you know it does but I have just I just love I'm like oh wow this is like look at you being professional and so I would be happy with that like I, it doesn't take much just re- yeah release a photograph of her writing in a notebook and I'd be satisfied for the next month yeah and I know and I you know it's not very honest but they could take on one day like a batch of photos of her scattered around Kensington Palace in different like jumpers with notebooks or on the phone and like post them throughout the year and be like this is what the Duchess of Cambridge has done because so much of her work is meetings and I'm not saying I want to see a picture of Kate sat in a meeting with the same people every week because I would get bored but I do think and I was thinking about this a lot last night actually I was looking was looking at how many like days she's worked this year and then how many physical times we've seen her or seen pictures of her so much of her work is behind the scenes the amount of times we physically see her is really small in comparison to other royals you know even people like crown princess victoria who engagement wise even will work less than kate because they don't measure them in the same manner but we see her a lot more because they release those pictures of her in meetings and her on zoom and um, I do I do think we should put you know Kate's workload as a whole session one time because I have a lot of thoughts about it <laughs> but um but yeah I do think that they don't even when they do their work they don't help themselves particularly because we're going towards the end of the year and so we know that their engagement numbers are going to tail off which kind of neatly not at all tenuously um leads us into Christmas the royals have very slowly and quietly started releasing their Christmas plans um, with, you know, the press being like, oh, the Queen's invited everyone to Sandringham this year. Like, she doesn't do that every year. And you know, I know the Danish royal family have announced what, like, where they're all going to be, all the different cohorts of them. And I just, I like the build up to Christmas. I like being like, I like the drama of whenever anyone doesn't go to Sandringham at Christmas, everyone goes, how dare they? The Queen's going to die. And it's all their fault when, you know, they've been saying that for 10 years. <laughs> and personally, I mean, maybe some things are over-exaggerated or whatever, but when you read about the structure of Christmas in the 
British royal family. And I say structure deliberately because it is planned down to the minute and there's co- there's outfit changes. And it just, to me, sounds terrible. Like I just want to sit in my pajamas, eat loads of food. I don't want to go outside. So I understand why somebody wouldn't want to go to, and no shade to the queen, but I understand. My interest in it is that walkabout. And um, I think we didn't obviously, we didn't have one last year, which is fine and understandable. And I do think this year's one is a bit up in the air. And it, it interests me like going forward when when we have King Charles, will the, you know, Camilla's children be there? Will um, will it even be at Sandringham? I want to know these things. Well, that's the thing, because it hasn't always. I think they used to do it at Windsor, didn't they? Um, yeah. So it's not it doesn't have to be at Sandringham. And yeah, I do think that Charles will possibly be, be a bit more inclusive about who comes. Yeah. And I think obviously if it stays in Sandringham, that's where Anna Hall is. So it gives, you know. William and Kate the opportunity to bring the Middletons up and have that kind of space and Sandringham's so big as well there's nothing stopping Sophie bringing I mean I don't know if she's got any brothers or sisters but you know I would find it very difficult to adjust suddenly going to somebody else's house and doing their things because Christmas is a very much like everybody has their own individual traditions and their own things yes. that they do that only make sense to their family or only sound fun to their family and so I think it must be quite strange to adjust to not just a new family, but also a family that comes with all of these expectations and rules and um, duties that you have to complete as part of just spending Christmas together. Yeah, I think you get all those stories about how Diana and Kate and Megan have made massive mistakes at Christmas. And I'm always like, yeah, you know what they probably did because they have so many rules. They were like, oh, no, I've put my evening gown on at four instead of my dinner gown. Oh, my gosh, what a disaster. I've used the wrong spoon. It's all going to go wrong. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the Danes obviously announced and they've got, you know, step parents within them. So you've got the crown princess, the crown princess, the crown prince family, you've got Frederick and Mary and their kids going with Marguerite. And then you've got um, Marie and um, her little <laughs> her little family uh, with her family in Spain. And then you've got um, Nikolai and Felix going to their mother, which they've publicly announced I don't even think we ever publicly announced it before especially not this early but I think you know it obviously it works you can split royals at Christmas and it's not the world's biggest deal yeah and that for a lot of royal families this is not a thing at all like the Swedish royal family are the ones that I follow and their Christmas tradition is that they they do a few engagements that are Christmassy and the Swedish, the, the Crown Princess family release a video every year, which I'm very much looking forward to because it's always adorable. Um, but they don't actually do a public Christmas. They spend it privately and we don't really get a huge sense of where they go or whether they spend that time together. Um, so it's it's very different depending on which family you go to. I like, I was thinking the other day, we thought that build up with like the Christmas cards coming out soon. I love Royal Christmas cards because I like whether they go for like a proper Christmas theme, which they don't really do that often, or like you get cute family pictures or you get like a summer holiday picture, which is so inappropriate for Christmas. And I just love it. I do love that. But I also I want the dog. I want the new dog to be in the Cambridge family photo. And I want Rio, who's the Crown Princess family of Sweden's dog. I want him to be in their photographs. I just want dogs in all the photos, please.
our last light bite slash information nugget. Uh, people can sound off in the comments <laughs> about what they prefer. Um, there is um, the state visit from Spain to Sweden with Queen Letizia and King Philippe going to visit Sweden and being hosted by uh, Carl Gustaf and Sylvia and their family. It was a, only a very short visit this time around. It was two days. Um, but it's been a few decades since the last state visit between the two countries. I was just really pleased to see um, Carl Philippe and Sophia because obviously they kind of stepped down as working royals in their own way. Um, and they, they do still do work for the family, but on a much smaller scale. And they could have just not been there and it wouldn't have been a problem. So I thought it was really nice to see them. Even if I'm getting kind of annoyed of Sophia wearing the same tiara. I mean, I know it's her wedding tiara and it's very adaptable and it's very cool and it's very pretty and it's graceful on her but Sweden has so many tiaras like we're now down to two tiara wearers in that family we need a bit of a range coming through I mean I didn't dislike the tiara because I, well when I first saw it when she wore it for her wedding which you know I, I was at not as a guest I should clarify that but I I was in Sweden in the crowd you know no big deal um but anyway um <laughs> when she wore that tiara um I wasn't a massive fan of it in general and then she wore it a second time I can't remember whether it was th with the pearls the second time or what it was but she she wore it with either the pearls or the diamonds and it was like oh it's a you know she'd worn it with emeralds for her wedding and now sh she's got a different thing and then she wore it with something else and then she wore it with turquoise and so it's very adaptable so I don't mind seeing the tiara itself but it would have been nice if she'd maybe had like rubies or yeah had shaken it up a little bit again um because the Swedish royal family are quite unusual I think compared to some royal families particularly the British people tend to get a tiara that is theirs to wear they don't own it but it's loaned to them for use pretty much for their entire life whereas in Sweden there are a couple of tiaras that people prefer or they wear more often and there's a couple that are generally only for the queen but generally speaking they're, they're pretty shared so there's very few that are personally owned by them as individuals um or they're yeah. sort of limited to them so it would you know she could she has worn lots of different tiaras and she could definitely uh expand it a little bit and wear something slightly different but yeah there was that period after her wedding where she like went through the vault and wore loads of them and I was having a great time um and I, I mean I can see why she goes back to it because it's obviously it's her it's a wedding tiara and it's it is a really nice tiara and it's adaptable and you know every time she wears it could be different but sometimes just like wear a different one <laughs> I want to see more tiaras but no that's just me being really pernickety it looked great Victoria I didn't like the tiara well no that's not true I love the tiara and I love the tiara with the dress which is a gown she wore for the photographs that were released for her and Daniel's 10th wedding anniversary and it's a beautiful beautiful gown so I was you know I I, I liked I, it has little blue flowers on it and I thought that aquamarine really pulled those out but the sash was yellow and white <laughs> and so I felt like aquamarine yellow and white and then like a dress that's mostly pink with a little bit of blue just it was too much yeah no it's because I don't think her hair was big enough for that tiara <laughs> which is a weird thing because her hair is so big when she does proper tiara hair but you know it's one of those ones where it needs like a nest and they just didn't she wasn't nesting and speaking of nesting hair um Sylvia brought out the cameo which is quite a divisive tiara and I know a lot of people don't like it but I loved it and I loved it with this gown because the gown was that kind of it was kind of like a stony beigey 
kind of metallic-y color that worked really well with the cameo, I thought. I thought she looked beautiful. Yeah, and I think, she, I mean, you're the expert, but I don't think they wear the cameo that often just in regulation because it's their wedding tiaras. It's also incredibly fragile. Yes, and um, obviously Letizia brought out my favourite tiara, which I was having a great time about, the um, the Queen Ina's Fleur de Lis tiara, which is huge, and I always think should overpower her because she's so small, but didn't, and I was just, I mean, with that and the cameo, it really was quite a good night for tiaras. It really was, and I loved that she wore H&M as well. Yes, yes, um, it was a really nice touch. Yeah, so H&M is Swedish, obviously, but I, I, what I love is, you know, Victoria's got a very close connection with H&M and she's friends with the CEO or the son of the CEO. Um, so she wears them quite a lot anyway, but um, she's worn H&M to the Nobel Prize and to her brother's wedding. So, you know, she's, she's um, worn H&M at a few very prestigious uh, high profile events. And so seeing Letizia wear H&M at a state visit, is kind of like, it makes me feel like when I go into an H&M shop, if it's good enough for Queen Letizia, the Queen of Spain, to wear to a state banquet, um, possibly the most, you know, sort of high level diplomatic thing that they do, then it's absolutely fine for me to wear it to work. And it was a, a version of one of the other gowns that Victoria wore in her wedding anniversary photos, which, I mean... I'm sure she knew that, Letizia, when she chose that dress, which is just such a nice... T- she didn't have to do that. She could have worn a Spanish dress and we would have been fine with it, but it was a very, very sweet touch. Yeah, I thought that was really lovely. And it just it did also look beautiful on her. Like, even if you take away the designer, if you take away the connections, it was uh, the colour was really nice on her. You know, I'm, the men were also there. Yeah, I didn't even look at them. <laughs> they might not be there, I wouldn't have noticed. I spotted Philippe, Philippe because I was like, he's so tall. Oh, he's but, so handsome. Know, that's kind of... All I think every time I'm like, wow, look at that tall man go. It was nice to see a state visit because a lot of them were kind of suspended because of COVID, understandably, because they couldn't really do a lot of the things that a state visit is designed to do. But I think that segues nicely (laughs) into another topic, which is very heavily linked to state visits, which is what's the point? Yeah, I actually got a um, message and this was before we launched the podcast I think you know they were saying that they love the they love the interaction and they love being able to see tiaras and so they love state visits from their own personal perspective but they don't really understand why um, it's beneficial or useful for particularly in a situation like this where there's two monarchs who have very little actual power uh, meeting with each other to chat about things and sort of they were kind of asking well, what is the point in in doing that if nothing's actually going to come out of it so that's kind of what sparked this question we thought we'd talk a little bit about the purpose of a state visit if there is one <laughs> I mean I think on a very um plain and basic level it's good PR really it's nice to see I think that royals do exist in their own little sphere and um, they are on a level that no one else is. I mean, they're they're separate from presidents and prime ministers and chancellors and what have you. Um, and there is something quite exciting about seeing two queens meeting each other. Because I still think when you think of a queen, you think, you know, a Tudor queen and, you know, the olden day regal nobility. And, and it is nice when they do the tiaras and they do the pomp and they do the pageantry. Um, 
and it's 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 such an exciting event and you could very much remove it because you know prime ministers and presidents have similar events they do um not you know with tiaras or such but they do, they do have big dinners and oh can people. you imagine can you imagine angela merkel <laughs> just showing up in a tiara she should i would i would vote for that yeah um but yeah i think that the the um the confusion does arise when you get a country like sweden where you know the king has no power at all and is essentially just a man of the crown um taking on that kind of ceremonial role especially compared to somewhere like Spain or um, England, Britain, where their monarch is the head of state with a level of power, whether or not they wield that power, but they have it. To me, it seems strange. I understand why people draw the distinction between sort of a a monarchy and not a monarchy, but a state visit is by definition the visit of a head of state to another head of state. So, and I think what people perhaps don't realize is that this division between the head of state and the head of government exists in republic. So if you look at Germany as an example, um, they have presidents who are elected um, and who are head of state. And then they have their head of government, who's usually the prime minister or a chancellor or some role like that. That's some name like that. And they are not the head of state. So Angela Merkel is not the head of state of Germany, has never been head of state of Germany. I don't even remember the name of the guy who was head of state of Germany and has been for like four years because it's not the day to day role that makes a difference. And so it's actually it's not really that different. I mean, the main difference is that they're elected or not elected, but the president's role is often in these, in these systems where there's a division between the head of state and the head of government, the president's role is often very ceremonial as well. And they do sometimes have residual powers, but so does the queen. Um, she can and does regularly veto laws. So I think it's almost not helpful to draw a distinction between monarchies and presidents necessarily, um, because there will be lots of situations where the two people who are meeting don't have power, but neither of them are monarchs. Yeah, I think, you know, on a really minor scale in, you know, a lot of cities in Britain, you get mayors mm-hmm. and you get Lord mayors and the Lord mayors wear fancy coats and, you know, they open shops and the mayors have actual power. Um, and I think it is, it's very similar because, like you said, if, you know, Charles and Angela Merkel met or Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel, to be more specific, like, it's a power meeting because they both have a lot of power in their respective countries they're both elected heads of government but neither of them is going to turn up for a tiara whereas the queen and whoever the president of germany is or you know the president of america where he's also the head of state yeah that is a like that's why when donald trump came to the uk and he didn't the first time he came it didn't get the tiara the tiara state banquet it was like oh this isn't a state visit this is a short unofficial friendly visit because there was that distinction drawn whereas the second time he turned up and they did the whole tiara thing yeah and I think that sort of highlights the fact that a state visit is one form of diplomacy it's just one one tool in their arsenal I suppose you could say so um there will be plenty of times when people meet and it might just be the ministers for trade or you know the ministers for the environment and they're from two countries will meet and have a discussion and make decisions or sign treaties or whatever it is that they do it's so this is just one form the state visit doesn't 
take away from any other forms of meeting. In actual fact, it's often the state visit is kind of we see the public showy part of it where they they go to their military processions and they inspect the troops and have a carriage ride. But in this example of uh, Letizia and Philippe that recently going to Sweden, they were accompanied by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who presumably held private meetings alongside the sort of public schedule that was going on. You know, it, it's not just the sort of showy element to it. That's one part of a state visit. Um, and it and a state visit in itself is only one element of or one way of communicating with another country and building relationships with them. Yeah, and I think it is a really good way, as because it is so showy in public, to I don't want to be like promote link between countries, but that is kind of what it does. It's like, look, Sweden and Spain are friends. And you know, here are some things that Spanish people are interested in in Sweden. And I'm sure if it went the other way, there are some things that Swedish people will be interested in in Spain. Um, and that's kind of you know why it's such a big deal is because they are being like look at us we're buds we hang out we do things even though you know like we said Carl Gustav himself isn't you know sitting down being like this is what I'm going to organize and do all these things Um, it's very much decided for him but his job is to make Spain look good and you know you can talk to people in the face about whether or not state visits are worth the time but every country in the world has a state visit with other countries it's just they might not have tiaras and I'm going to be honest if we're going to have to have a monarchy I want a tiara I can't want that balance that's the exchange that we've agreed on you can take our, a part of our democracy but we want tiaras in exchange I agree with that and the do- and also dogs um and yes. dog- dogs in tiaras that would be so anyway um I definitely agree with you that it's a lot of it is about those sort of PR elements and about visually showing the connection between countries if we use an example mary has gone to australia because she's from australia and she's gone there on official visits and she'll often like go to the opera house which is a very quintessential australian landmark but it was also designed by a danish architect and so mary being this person who's got connections to australia and denmark going to a building that is an emblematic of Australia to lots of people in the world, but has a very, very important Danish element. It's kind of that visual way of showing, look at what we can do when we work together. Look at how close our relationships are. We've got this physical, tangible thing that shows how close we are. Yeah, and I think that's why when royals or even other you know, politicians from other countries visit other countries, they tend to visit the head of state first and then go off and do their you know, official stuff afterwards because that's the crowd pleaser you know someone from I don't know, Bulgaria coming to visit the queen is more you know impressive than them going to visit Boris Johnson so they'll go visit the queen first and that will be the front page pictures and then they will sneak off and have their serious important meetings which actually have an impact on our country. You get caught up in the hysteria of the whole thing um, that does feel very special in a way that you know, a visit from Boris Johnson probably isn't going to. And there must be some benefit to it because they keep doing it. Like if you look in the UK specifically, we've had lots of um, moments where relationships with other countries have been slightly more tense and they've sent royals specifically because of that. So William and Kate might be sent to Scotland because of independence or Harry was sent to the Caribbean when there was a lot of talk about them sort of, 
uh, removing the queen as the head of state or, uh, you know, they get sent to Australia a lot whenever there's a rumble of um, republicanism, they send over somebody with a baby and, you know, everything's fine again. And I, I think there is kind of, if you want to make a request of another country, if you just go and say, hey, we want you to do this, that's, you know, it might work, it might not. But if you say, hey, we want you to do this and we're also going to give you a chance to meet the queen and um, have fancy tiaras and get loads of press attention, people are going to go with that second option. And also you kind of know that when the royals go, it is very much a soft, gentle approach. So there's not going to be any like major drama. Whereas if, you know, Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel go meet up, something could go terribly wrong at any moment. You know, they could make a big announcement like we've decided we're going to go to war with France. I don't know. But, you know, that's not going to happen if Charles pops over for a cup of tea. So it is, it's, it, I mean, it does seem a bit silly, but it is kind of a more like relaxed approach to diplomacy. I did actually find a study because I was looking into this and I found a study that it was looking at president presidencies rather than monarchies but it did look at Germany and so a similar sort of setup where there's a division between head of state and head of government and they did find that in the years after a state visit um, there was an increase in trade between the two countries um, which I thought was interesting yeah definitely interesting and I think the fact that places like I mean I know they're not exactly recent republics but places like France and America still do state visit where they they quite famously were like we don't want to be a monarchy anymore um it it must work on some level whether it, it is just oh we've always done this let's just keep doing it but make it the president instead i don't know but they could have not done it anymore but they all continue to do it so there's clearly something in it i think particularly with with the monarchy ones because they are so like distantly related they very much go over and be like hi cousin and you know everyone gets a bit warm and fuzzy when they do that so it's going to look better because you can be like oh look at these very distant cousins who are related through like their great 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 uncle and they're just so close it's wonderful as much as I don't support the concept of a monarchy there is an element of it kind of there being a nice lineage there where particularly with the queen you know she's met so many people she she has that sort of knowledge that nobody else has yeah I remember when um Canada came over not, not the whole of Canada obviously but you know Justin Trudeau and his wife came over um and he made a comment about his dad being there previously and she was like oh you make me feel really old but like that was a very good PR moment to be yes. like remember when his dad was this had this job and now he does and the queen's still there both times and she's met both of them and and you know it still gets brought up to this day so that did probably more more for them than the rest of the visit put together that tiny little exchange yeah and that's that's what the press look out for that's what people look out for is those sound bites this human moments yeah human moments definitely um uh and i suppose that's that's main that maybe encapsulates the difference the human moments politicians are very uh, maybe it's just a uk thing but we don't generally have a lot of trust for politicians even the ones you vote for and possibly quite like i don't trust them um I tolerate them. Yeah, they're the best of the bad bunch, really. And so, whereas the royals, and and this is not just in the UK, it's in lots of family, lots of countries where their their image is the sort of the soft family um, alternative to this harsh world of politics. Um, and so, through a state visit that's between monarchies in particular, they can element, uh, they can emphasize these sort of human moments and human connection um, in a way that signing a treaty 
doesn't necessarily. So, yeah, I think, I mean, this has gone on for quite a while. So I do think that is everything we're going to talk about today. Um, Obviously, we've had so many, far more than I was expecting, requests and ideas from people that I found particularly interesting I'm not gonna lie um and we've already got a bit of a a bit of a list going um but yeah there is any other ideas people have come up with whether sparked by today's podcast or by just the world in general that you would like to talk about you know get in touch you can obviously get in touch on um we have the on-air podcast tumblr now we have it has an email on air podcast at gmail.com we've got an instagram on air podcast at instagram um, so there's loads of ways to contact and obviously Jessica and I both have our blogs as well we have mine is obviously Princess Catherine Middleton on Tumblr and underscore K Middy on Instagram and yours are yeah I'll do the Swedish um, um on Tumblr it's Duchess of Ustietlands which is no one will be able to write down unless they're Swedish and even <laughs> if they're Swedish they might not be able to because I'm sure I messed that up um uh, yeah, Duchess of Estietlands and um, on Instagram, I am how to dress like a princess. So there are lots of different ways that you can reach us. Yes, but again, thank you so much for engaging with us from the last podcast and sending your ideas and sending messages that were just really nice and friendly. And I know it, I, I was not expecting it at all. And I'm now very excited about this. Um, and I can't wait, quite frankly, to keep making them. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, see you next week.